This is study three, drawn from the book of Job, chapters 12 to 14, where Job states his case. We're skipping on to chapter 12. After all his friends have stated their cases and he has answered them, Job makes a major statement in these three chapters of how he views the situation. Much of what he says could be regarded as very pessimistic, as he expresses his quite natural unhappiness at what has happened to him and his family. But I think we are expected to learn several things from his experiences and what he says, so we will try to make the most of it. To repeat yet again what was said in the introduction to the first study, behind all the arguments of the three friends is what we are calling a CEP cause-effect principle operating in moral theology. They are all, his friends and Job, saying that everything that happens to a person has a moral cause, cause hidden behind it. In essence, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. From that starting point, his friends have deduced that however much Job may protest otherwise, he is not a good person, because bad things have happened to him. This theology is still around, both inside and outside the church. It appears every time someone says, he didn't deserve that, or God's not fair. In these chapters, Job begins to understand and to argue that the world does not work that way. Life is just not as simple as that. I'm going to read the first three verses of chapter 12. Job replied, Doubtless you are the only people who matter, and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things. Here is a question about those verses. What does Job really mean by what he says here? How would you describe his attitude expressed in these words? The answer has to be that Job is being very sarcastic. You have to be quite a clever person to be as sarcastic as this. He is clearly quite fed up with the way his so-called friends are treating him. He knows, as we know from having read the first two chapters of this book, that he is not guilty of serious sin. His experiences are not a reflection of who he is or what he has done. He is not being punished in any way for misdeeds he may have committed. What has happened is part of the NCL, the normal chaos of life. And now, here is the rest of the chapter. I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called on God and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Those who are at ease have contempt for misfortune, as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of marauders are undisturbed, and those who provoke God are secure, those God has in his hand. But ask the animals, 
and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows officials long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisers and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. Job is still being sarcastic through the rest of that chapter. The animals are wise, wiser than his friends. God treats the high and mighty, people like his friends, just the same as everyone else. Nations rise and fall as God decrees. And we suddenly realize that in being sarcastic, Job has actually moved forward to understand that life is chaotic. The NCL does happen. That is the way the world works. The next step that he takes in the next chapter is to start arguing that he wants to appear before God in a court of law to argue his case. I'm going to read the first 19 verses of chapter 13. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You're worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the pleas of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive a mortal? He would surely call you to account if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendour terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims 
are proverbs of ashes. Your defences are defences of clay. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. Listen carefully to what I say. Let my words ring in your ears. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Job is starting to be a great deal more positive. I am no expert on the stages of grief, but I think this might be regarded as a good sign. He is starting to think more forcefully, and in it all he is still declaring his faith. He said, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Well done, Job. That sounds good. He continues in much the same way in the remainder of the chapter, which I now read. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offence and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a wind-blown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me reap the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. So man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. But it proves to be a false dawn. In the next few verses, the first six of chapter 14, he slides back into despair. He wants God to leave him alone. Here are those six verses. Mortals born of woman are a few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away. Like fleeting shadows they do not endure. Do you fix your eye on them? Will you bring them before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired labourer. But then, equally suddenly, he thinks of a metaphor for his existence in the next three verses. Here they are. At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. 
if a tree is cut down, it is not finished. It will send out new buds, it will sprout again. It won't grow to be the same tree it might have been before, but it will grow. More plant-like, less tree-like, but still alive and still valuable. There is something we call hope. And yet again, he changes direction in verses 10 to 22. He says, But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As the water of a lake dries up or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so he lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. People will not awake or be roused from their sleep. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps but not keep track of my sin. My offences will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy a person's hope. You overpower them once for all, and they're gone. You change their countenance, and send them away. If their children are honoured, they do not know it. If their offspring are brought low, they do not see it. They feel but the pain of their own bodies, and mourn only for themselves. So he goes backwards and forwards. Humans die, and that is the end of them, unlike a tree. But perhaps that is a good thing, because his sin supposing that that is the problem after all, will be covered over. No, perhaps it isn't, because the Lord God destroys hope the way a stream in flood will destroy the surrounding ground. Make up your mind, Job. Which way is it? It would be easy to get fed up with Job in his swinging backwards and forwards, his pessimism and his optimism, his inability to make up his mind about the future. Is the hope somewhere in the future? Or is his future, our future, as black as he thinks in his down moments? What positive helpful ideas can we get from this tossing and turning of Job? They're not immediately obvious, but I think there are three. The first is this. Job is becoming furious with his three friends because they have gone on blundering along with so many words using okay phrases as bandages to wrap around his wounds without healing them at all. Paul said the gift of prophecy is to speak to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. It is all too easy to major on the first two of those and forget about the comfort bit. Not everyone is able to say the right words to offer real comfort 
for the suffering or struggling. It is a real gift for those who can. These three guys did not have it. And a question. What about you? Do you have this gift? The answer, of course, is up to you. Or to your friends, perhaps. If you do have it, use it. If not, don't make the same sort of mistake these guys did. The second idea we can get from these chapters is this. We can go down like Job. Horrible things can happen to us and to those whom we love. Our world can crash round our ears, but that is not the end. We should still have faith. We should still be faithful. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, said Job. And that can and should be our statement too. I didn't call it a prayer in that last sentence, but a statement. For fear that it might then be read as a possibility and not as it should be, as a certainty. We're all subject to the NCL, the normal chaos of life. Some of us more heavily, more dangerously than others. We don't know why that is the way the world is. We just have to accept that the world that our loving God, our Creator God, created, is a world of chaos. He may know what it all means. He does know what it all means. But we do not. And the third thing we have to learn from these experiences of Job is this. The nature of God is such that we may argue with him. He is that sort of God. No shut away, unapproachable God is he. Job, like the psalmist, was allowed to complain, to lament, to grumble, to sulk. But God did not refuse to listen to him. Sometimes we're like that, complaining, grumbling, lamenting, sulking. But God is still our God, our loving, listening, hearing God. That is easier for us to understand, to grasp, than it was for Job, because we know about Jesus. We know that although Jesus was the agent of creation, responsible for all that is, he was still prepared to listen to, even to argue with, the non-Israelite woman who was desperate to have her daughter healed. He said, It is not right to Tilda take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she retorted, Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he accepted what she said, and changed his mind, so that her daughter was healed. That is the sort of God with whom we have to do. A loving, caring, arguing, concerned God. In fact, an amazingly human God. Because we're made in the image of God, so, to at least some extent, He has to be in the image of what is best in being human. Jesus, God, walked on water in the midst of the storm, that so upset the disciples in the boat. 
What a wonderful metaphor that is of how our God will walk with us in the midst of all the storms of life on this earth, the normal chaos of life. Job was struggling, very understandably, but by the grace of God he had some idea that he was not alone. In all his mood swings, God was with him. He might despair for the moment, but that despair would pass because God was with him. That's the way it is with us, if we're prepared to recognize it.